Hello and welcome back to the Australian Histories podcast. Today we're going to conclude the series exploring the Snowy Mountains Hydroelectric Scheme, the vast hydroelectric and irrigation project that began in 1949 and was under construction for 25 years across the Snowy Mountains. If you are just new to the Australian Histories podcast, you might like to start this Snowy Hydro story back at the first episode in this series, that's episode 38, before making your way back to here. Last episode we talked about some of the living and working conditions for the labourers on the scheme. Today we'll continue that theme a little further, talking about the industrial relations arrangements and a little more about safety and the living conditions, which I just couldn't fit in last time. And we'll briefly reflect on another cost of the scheme, the impact on the once mighty Snowy River itself. We'll talk about the Snowy Hydro Authority's success in its aim of supplying the anticipated electricity and water to Victoria, New South Wales, the Australian Capital Territory and South Australia, as well as developing and sharing the expertise they had gained across the Asia-Pacific region. But, as a celebration of the vision and the engineering feat itself, we also want to review how the workers reflected on the scheme themselves. First, I'd like to welcome and thank my new patron, Tom H. And also thanks to Fritz, who sent through a generous donation. I'm so happy you're loving the show. I really appreciate your support. Thanks to all those who contact me with positive feedback or leave warm reviews. These really do help in keeping me motivated on days when I don't really feel like turning on the computer. It gives me a nice little buzz. Those little endorphins are so welcome, particularly at this time, October 2020, Whatever we can do to help each other along through this confronting year is a welcome treat. Thanks. Previously, I've invited listeners to subscribe to an email newsletter that I sent out with each episode release, but I note from the stats that it's not being looked at much. Let's face it, we're all overwhelmed with emails and newsletters we think will be interesting, but which we run out of energy to look at. And I'm always pressed for time, and sometimes I don't always get additional content into the newsletter, so I've decided to discontinue it altogether now. What I will do instead is add any additional interesting items or links I've found to the podcast episode webpage. You can bookmark that webpage and always have a quick look there as you listen to each episode, in case there is anything additional of interest to you. So that webpage will remain the main platform containing additional info for each episode. For my patrons who've signed up through the Patreon platform and support me each month, I will of course continue to send through the rough transcripts as they're completed. And I've got a fantastic history podcast to recommend this month, so stay tuned at the end of this episode for more info on that. Now let's continue on from last week's reflection on the labourers' conditions, starting with a brief look at industrial relations on the snowy. As I've mentioned each episode, the information for this story retold here largely comes from the brilliant work done by Siobhan McHugh and presented in her book, The Snowy, A History. It's a great resource for anyone with a deep interest in the scheme. Details of this and other references used are noted in the reference list for the episode at www.australianhistoriespodcast.com.au The mountains wore the winter snow like a fairy dress While deep below I worked and watched the tunnel grow with Pedro He taught me how to load the face with gelignite And how to pace my strength against that tunnel race, did Pedro You can build a machine as big as you can But you'll never push a tunnel without a man We drilled and fired and the tunnel grew We sweated for the bonus due We lived it up when the day was through with Pedro For miners drink and miners fight He'd do both and then he'd write a letter to his girl each night would Pedro come to me he wrote Carmela Carmela The Australian Workers Union grew out of the earliest collectivist union movements in the shearing sheds of the late 1800s and while 52 unions had representation on the snowy scheme the AWU was the dominant force for most of the construction period Robinson, in talking about the industrial relations landscape across the Snowy, in his report on the occupational health and safety of the project, made the following reflection in relation to unions and the recruitment of the migrant workforce at a time in the late 1940s when unemployment in Australia was less than 1%. 
quote, The right-wing trade unions, led by the AWU, worked in close cooperation with the government to facilitate the entry of displaced persons into the workforce, unquote. The more left-leaning unions were opposed, apparently, believing that displaced persons would be anti-union who might undermine standards, being bound to do the bidding of their employers as indentured contractors. And to some extent that was true, in that many were wary of joining the unions, and their working contracts probably made them less able to speak up or take a stand that might cost them their employment. But the dominant unions had largely already negotiated the terms and conditions to be offered, as the project was planned, so conditions were all pretty much tied up for the length of the project anyway. There were a number of testy times and difficult negotiations, both with the Snowy Authority and with its contractors, and the arbitration courts had the complication of dealing with a federal authority running across state jurisdiction. So to solve that problem, the Snowy Scheme had its own arbitration system. Justice Stanley Taylor was given oversight of all snowy workplace arbitration, and interestingly, he also oversaw matters like those arising from property disputes with the authority too. This unusual system, largely to focus on conciliation, remained in place until the scheme's building phase was completed in 1974. McHugh gives a good outline of the background to this arrangement if you're interested in reading further. Treating the scheme as a specific and unique workplace meant that while the occasional dispute or stoppage would occur from time to time, no strikes seriously disrupted the building program during construction. This must have been a boon for the authority, and something quite amazing for a 25-year-long project. As we mentioned in earlier episodes, the prevailing working conditions generally followed were those modelled on the American Kaiser conditions, highly lucrative but demanding. It was understood that everyone there was to work hard. High productivity was expected in return for high wages. The food and accommodation offered to the workers under those agreements were of good quality by then too. There were some, though, that felt that the unions had sold out, placating the management too much and not standing up for the workers when they walked off the job, for example. But one union official explained... They wouldn't support strikes on the mountain because they had already negotiated very high pay and excellent conditions. Quote, it was pure capriciousness to have a strike the way we had their conditions. They were all well paid, bedded down, and they could have ten feeds a day if they wanted. What more could you do? Unquote. While most union reps were allowed across the sites, there did seem to be a blacklist though, so not everything was agreed to. And blacklists applied to ordinary workers, too. If you were sacked, there was usually no hope of getting work anywhere else on the scheme either, so there was plenty of incentive to accept the status quo. For the migrant workers, many were too concerned about losing their jobs to consider being assertive. They found themselves indentured to an extent far from any familiar support system, though they were encouraged to join the Australian unions. Many of the non-English-speaking migrants did work the most dangerous jobs, such as the concrete lining of the tunnels. Whether they felt they had any choice in the matter is the question. Certainly, there were Australians who told McHugh they simply left if they felt the work too dangerous, where migrants generally could not. Even with the union presence about, some suggested their arrangements with the management was a little too cosy. It was claimed that safety inspections came with a three-day warning to the bosses so not everyone felt embraced by the security of their union. But fortunately, Hudson himself was keen for high safety standards across the sites, and his contractors would have had that condition made clear to them. But, as we spoke about in the previous episode, they would have had to balance that against Hudson's insistence that no time be lost too. Again, as we discussed last episode, as the scheme developed, agreed safer work practices also developed and agreed safety procedures were to be followed across all sites to reduce the risks. But it probably was the newcomers who were most exposed to danger, not yet being familiar enough to avoid the known risks on the construction sites. There was also a level of fatalism amongst some workers, as mentioned previously. McHugh records one worker saying of the time, quote, Well, it isn't a women's knitting circle, you know, out in these parts. Things are pretty rough, and it's inevitable someone's going to get injured, and it's inevitable someone's going to get killed. A big engineering work like this is quite dangerous. I don't think you'll ever eliminate that from any construction. You can minimise it, and I think the safety measures that were put into effect with the snowy generally minimised it, 
I would say generally speaking, the safety measures taken were as good as you'd have got anywhere in the world, unquote. And yet, how devastating and heartbreaking every loss. When the inquiries found the weaknesses in the system, or the fault in the machinery, you couldn't help but be pained by the if-onlys of the situation. And of course, many more men were injured and incapacitated in the workplace for each fatality recorded. Serious accidents occurred, and men were sometimes hospitalised for months. However, even with the best procedures and equipment on the job, there will always be some who know the rules but choose to take the risk, never expecting to actually have to pay the price. The requirement for speed was considered the biggest danger to working safely on the snowy, the desire for big dollars being the main driver for contractors and workers alike. But one union guy said, quote, You had to clamp down, stand over the contractors a bit. There was speed, but they weren't indifferent to health or safety, unquote. So it's not a bad story on the whole. Work would stop for a day if a fatality had occurred, but then the men were expected back on the job the following day. One bloke said, quote, A fatality does tend to worry you for a week or two. People tend to maybe be a bit more careful, which doesn't hurt anyway, but it didn't affect morale that much, unquote. By 1959, 48 men had died and Hudson knew that the authority had to take more responsibility for enforcing the safety standards amongst the contractor sites too. So they formed the Snowy Mountains Joint Safety Council, consisting of the project manager from each major contractor, the authority commissioner and two dedicated safety officers. The union reps would bring concerns to the council and they were to investigate and report on methods for dealing with any problem. The Snowy Authority produced numerous Ock Health and Safety films, and some showed the safety gear that workers had access to there and must wear for particular tasks, including safety glasses and goggles, dust masks, safety boots of varying designs to cater for sites with climbing or a lot of walking, through to those with the highest grade steel capped foot protection for those working in the fall risk environments. There was even a beaut pair of steel capped gum boots. That's Wellington's for the English. I'm not sure what they're called elsewhere in the world, but I'll put a link to a couple of those video clips in the reference list. They showed the hard hats and the one-piece overalls with tapered and fitted legs and sleeves for those working near machinery to reduce the opportunity for fabric to be caught up, <laughs> as had happened to that startled worker who had his overalls torn off when the fabric got caught in the machinery that we mentioned previously. The films show men drilling and working with lathes with their très cool safety glasses. <laughs> but my modern eye was startled at the lack of safety barriers in front of the whirring moving parts while in operation. I know that there are some in the industry who feel that things have gone a little too crazy in trying to mitigate risk these days, but I think for the first couple of decades on the snowy at least, there was a fair way to go in that pendulum swing before these guys were really even reasonably protected. Things did improve over time, as you might imagine. By way of further incentive, bonuses were given for accident-free work sites. But it was suggested that the contractors really only lifted their game when the council created reports indicating the costs of such accidents. Man hours lost proved to be a big motivator for the contractors. So the men were working hard, but they weren't working 24 hours a day. In their meagre downtime, they were looking for distractions. As we mentioned in the previous episodes, drinking was a staple of after-work relaxation. Binge drinking did occur, but it was generally rare, as they usually worked six days and long hours, so you had to be able to pull up for the next shift successfully. We spoke about gambling that went on in the camps and around the towns, but there was other, more modest recreation available too, such as cards, scrabble, chess. And the authority made sure that the new release movies were shown in town, and even at the camps with as few as 15 men, so that was pretty good. For some, though, not much distraction was required. One man told McHugh, quote, You are that bloody tired, you just go to bed. Unquote. <laughs> the townships had sports clubs and social groups of all sorts, and there were dances and sing-alongs and reviews. On occasion, there were even visits from the larger sites by city theatre and ballet companies. But some of the single men's camps drew in other entertainments. The camps were full of well-paid single men, so before long there were taxi loads of ladies of the night being chauffeured in on the weekends to entertain the men. It was a long trip from Sydney, around 400 kilometres or 250 miles, but it could be a very lucrative visit. 
As with the gambling, the authority strategically ignored what was going on, except to limit such visits to the few days around payday, provided everyone was very discreet and the women would ply their trade only after dark. However, McHugh reports that the police and authority security men would turn back any women they thought might be troublesome if they, quote, didn't like the look of them, unquote, whatever that means. <laughs> the resulting uh, transactions might be conducted in caravans or, in one reported case, in the back of an ambulance vehicle. <laughs> or the women might simply knock on the barrack room doors and see who would invite them in. There was the odd brothel operating in nearby bush huts, where women would be brought in from Sydney for the weekend, but again, as with the gambling, they did try and keep the gangsters out of the equation. I'm not sure I can really put a cheery gloss on the experiences of the women, though. The environment must have been profitable for them, but it seems pretty gruesome. Their restricted access meant they would have had to have been working with the kind of haste exhibited on the construction jobs. One woman who was actually arrested on site, she was charged for working while infected with a venereal disease, as it turns out, was carrying enough money to indicate that she was entertaining about ten men each hour. Inevitably, sexually transmitted diseases, then VD, venereal diseases, were rife, and McHugh records a nurse saying that at one point, gonorrhea went right through the whole Tees village. <laughs> I mean, I'm laughing, but really, that's pretty awful. What's the old joke about, why a brush and metho, ma'am? <laughs> a doctor who specialised in VD was employed at one of the larger camps. He told McHugh about an Italian patient who was very upset after his diagnosis. Quote, but this is a compensation case. Anything that happens, a sickness that happens on work, I'm entitled to compensation, unquote. But, of course, they were warned. When the workers disembarked at Cooma Railway Station for their snowy contracts, they were greeted by a large sign, entreating them to, quote, beware of poisonous snakes, spiders and venereal disease. <laughs> Unquote. McHugh also recorded the story of one European lady, earning enough to pay her fare back home in just one weekend at the camps. Ah, oh, but to me, that's a dreadfully sad story. How desperate was she to get back home? I don't know. I feel uncomfortable just retelling that. It does feel like a sad and tainted element of what was a tremendous project, actually. Prostitution was still illegal then, though, and if brought to their attention, the police had to act. They were keen to charge any pimp with living off illegal earnings if they were involved, but generally they let the women off with a warning. Unless that woman was known to have spread STDs like the one I mentioned earlier. In that case, she would be charged and imprisoned. In turning a blind eye, plausible deniability could be maintained if the women came and went discreetly, at nominated times. But in another wonderful national stereotypical anecdote, apparently the French camp was said to have discreetly embedded, if we can use that term, some prostitutes at their camp. Some rumours saying they were actually on the payroll. <laughs> Of course, the upside for the management might have been that in keeping the service in-house, so to speak, meant that they reduced the potential for absenteeism. Good Lord. But McHugh noted this didn't solve the extreme loneliness that some men experienced, particularly the migrants. A few did bring their families out. There was a little mini-village of Norwegian families at Berriedale, for example, but while two-thirds of the Norwegian workers were married, most had left their families behind for their three-year contract. That must have been soul-destroying, and a number did opt to break their contracts and return home. By 1952, though, the labour market was softening in Australia, so they were able to relax the conditions and employ local workers to fill those empty positions. For those focused on the money, it was a good gig. By the 1960s, when the average wage might be 10 or 15 pound a week, snowy workers could earn up to 50 pound or more, particularly if they worked for the bonus-paying contractors, while there were some who would work solidly and then blow their money on the completion of the contract. Coming back to work on another site and starting again, most workers were good savers. Many international workers sent money to support their families back home, 
or were able to bring them out to Australia too, within a couple of years, setting them all up for a new future here. The locals could also set themselves up, with a property and a car to return to, when the job finished, so the rewards were there to be had. So the huge snowy project powered on over the years. Annual reports were produced each year, informing the federal government on the works completed to date, the status of works in progress, and the planning of the next phases. Costs were recorded, and as power began to be produced, the income calculated. They recorded power and water outputs, administrative matters, safety, public relations, matters of general interest, construction statistics, contractors and suppliers involved, and the reports are, to this day, a wealth of information. Most, if not all, of these annual reports are available online and can be found through links from the National Library of Australia's search facility, Trove. I'll put a link to at least one report in the reference list for this episode on my webpage. Looking at the reports, we can see that, only a few years after the production had started, by 1956 there were 120 miles of heavy-duty roads in place, capable of carrying up to 120 tonnes, equipment such as heavy turbine and generator components, and another 150 miles of standard vehicle roads. Again, this is an astounding feat, considering when they started the vast operations there, there were only two quality-engineered roads across the whole area. The Snowy Authority's 20th annual report in 1969 reported that its operating capacity had by then reached well over 2 million kilowatts, with more to come, and substantial water releases already flowing into the Murray and Murrumbidgee. With construction at a number of early sites well completed, many of the support facilities there were being decommissioned, and this 1969 report notes that the Jindabyne work camps were sold to the New South Wales State Education Department for use as a national fitness camp, for example. In 1972, the final massive construction project, the Tumut 3 power station, was completed, and thus the hard-working construction teams finished up on the snowy. The official opening of the Tumut 3 project by the then Governor-General, Sir Paul Hasluck, on the 21st of October 1972, marked the completion of the construction works on the project. Though other works continued, with the final power station generators installed there and commissioned on August 16, 1974. In the last annual report, dated September 1974, the then Acting Authorities Commissioner, P.G. Collins, wrote, quote, I'm particularly pleased to present this report as it not only records progress during the 1973-74 financial year, but also marks the virtual completion of the construction of the scheme, which commenced in 1949. It is most gratifying to be able to report that in all essential respects the scheme has been built as envisaged, ahead of schedule and within the estimates, unquote. Now, that's a report that would make any CEO jump for joy. <laughs> Thus, the ambitious 25-year Snowy Mountains hydroelectric scheme was completed, and to the amazement of probably everyone today, it had met its schedule completion date within its anticipated budget. Who would believe that possible in such a massive project? Most of the contractors and labourers moved on, with a good number of the long-term workers retiring, some settling in the now familiar Cooma, Snowy Mountains area. Some of the migrant workers did return with their earnings to their original homes spread across Europe, but more than half stayed on to continue building their lives in Australia. McHugh reflected, quote, Wherever they ended up, the migrants had one thing in common – the snowy had been their vehicle from the old world to the new, an unforgettable experience that had moulded their lives along different lines, unquote. One man, thinking he would resume his life in Europe after so long working in Australia, headed off to Germany to make arrangements for his permanent return, but it didn't go to plan. When he then travelled back to Cooma to settle his affairs at this end, ready for his final move, he found himself surprised at his response, and he couldn't pack up and leave, after all. Quote, when I came back to organise it, I came to Canberra, took a taxi to Cooma, and the closer I came to Cooma, I came home. I never looked back. Before, I had said many times, look at this bloody eucalyptus. I can't look at it any more. Today, it all looks beautiful. You adjust to it. It's just part of you. Unquote. And that's the experience of many who live away from home for an extended time, isn't it, all over the world? 
You leave, you make a home in the new world, and maybe lament the loss and beauty of your old home, but in time, that's only nostalgia. If you enjoy your new environment and learn to love it, it's often no longer possible to go back. The intervening years have moved your old home on, away from the familiar. Not everyone experienced that shift, though, and for others, it was almost generational. Quote, we always felt we were visitors to this country, and perhaps we owed something to it for taking us in. But after a time, I realised I belong here, in the mountains. I think my children feel Australian. We've paid our debt now, unquote. And some of the Australians who were suspicious and wary of the newcomers and their strange ways later delighted in the enrichment they brought to the Australian experience, not least the wonderful and vast array of national and regional cuisines and festivals and the like, but also, quote, it broadened our thinking and our appreciation of different cultures, unquote. Of course, when the workers left, Cooma got quieter, now representing the regional centre and service town for the pastoral and settled power industries, its population around 8,000. As I think I mentioned in an earlier episode, Hudson was 53 when the project began, and he eventually retired before its completion, in 1969. Associate Commissioner Lang worked as Hudson's second-in-command for 10 years, leaving in 1959, McHugh suggests there may have been a level of discontent between him and Hudson by then, and he was replaced by Howard Dan. Merrigan, the other associate commissioner that Hudson brought in at the beginning, also resigned in 1965, being replaced by Eric Worrell. But it was Dan that took over from Hudson when he retired. McHugh records that Hudson himself would have stayed on forever if he could, and he had twice negotiated an extension to his service, by Acts of Parliament but they wouldn't do it a third time. He was at the office and on the job for 18 years, his last day on the Snowy arriving in April 1967, just two days short of his 71st birthday. His wife recalled that he was devastated at not being able to see through the final few years of his grand plan from the driver's seat. But he did have the satisfaction of being recognised by the public as the major driver and facilitator of the impressive scheme. He was the man who had actually forged and driven the massive project forward, with complete success. He moved from Cooma to Canberra for his retirement, and remained on the talking circuit for those interested in the massive project, until his death in September 1978. Described as a man with minimal ego, never pursuing accolades, he did actually receive a knighthood in 1955 for his role in the scheme, though that was still early days then. But McHugh said his real reward was the respect and even love he evoked from his massive workforce over the years. And though he was forced into retirement before completion, he did live to see the project successfully completed, just as he had planned. McHugh adds, quote, The selection of Bill Hudson as a director of operations proved the final crucial ingredient, unquote. And she may be right. He seemed perfectly fitted and committed to the task. How many others could have made it all come together so successfully is the unknown. Demonstrating the pride and value the scheme engendered, McHugh recorded one engineer saying, It wasn't just achieving the goal of irrigation and the power supply. It was proving to ourselves that we could actually undertake and complete the complicated and ambitious venture. It transformed the country from one with barely an engineer available to one with the leading experts consulting to the world for decades. It set up the once culturally cringed country to be confident and self-sufficient, to further contribute to the post-war boom years and bring the country striding forward into the modern world. It was very satisfying, unquote. And that pride was felt by workers across the scheme, from those in the small isolated work camps to the secretarial pools at head office, and right across the many work sites. It was a project that fed and encouraged a personal and collective pride. Quote, this was something that was growing, and you felt you were part of it. Unquote. And for the most part, the country was behind them too. McHugh quotes a snowy draftsman, recalling, quote, I was coming back from Queensland and I thought, we'll take some of those butte watermelons and pineapples and stuff back. So we went to the roadside stall and we brought some. And the guy said, oh, you're from down south, are you? The whole bill came to about four quid. Anyway, he says, whereabouts down south? We said, Cooma. 
Oh, you'd never see fruit like that down there. Make it two quid. What are you doing down there? And we said, we're working on the Snowy Mountains scheme. And he goes, oh, here, just take the lot. That was the feeling. I think that typifies the way Australia looked at it, unquote. <laughs> Everyone wanted to do their bit for the success of the scheme. Blessed are the fruit sellers, eh? <laughs> Hudson was continually promoting that sense of pride. In 1956, he instigated an annual gathering to celebrate those who'd started with the project at the beginning, those working with the authority prior to June 1951, hosting what they called the Old Hands Dinner. It was a matter of great honour to be an old hand. Many workers did stay on year after year, but of course it was such a long project. It was inevitable that a percentage would move on or retire, but there were even some that stayed on after the project was completed, and McHugh recorded that three were still working for the authority in the late 1980s. A plant operator, a mess assistant, and a stores manager. So that's dedication to Korea, <laughs> and it's a small manifestation of the esprit de corps that Hudson always promoted. Hudson himself would always do his bit to promote the scheme and praise his workers, writing articles, making himself available for interviews, and generally keeping the scheme in the public psyche. We mentioned previously that from 1950 onwards, regular tours were arranged for journalists. In 53, this was expanded to the public, who could join in on the special inspections. And by 56, visitors could even stay in various construction areas and towns to tour the construction sites. By 1959, the authority employed 16 conducting officers who would guide the 54,000 annual visitors on regular car tours throughout the various construction areas, complete with stops at specific viewing stations. And they provided a selection of notice boards and audiovisual offerings at visitor centres. Today, there's the large Discovery Centre at Cooma, the Murray One Visitor Centre near Kankaban, the Talbingo Display Centre at Talbingo, close to the Tumut 3 power station, and the Cabramura Township, touted as Australia's highest town, which has a display of photographs from the construction of the scheme. I'll put a link to the Snowy Hydro promos about its current visitor centres on the website. Over the 25-year operation, the scheme employed around 100,000 people. By its final year in 1974, only 340 people were still employed by the authority, though McHugh notes many of the highly skilled and experienced engineers and technical staff had earlier transferred to a spin-off organisation, the Snowy Mountains Engineering Corporation, as their direct contributions to the scheme wound up. In the first decade of the scheme, the Snowy Authority leaned heavily on the expertise of the US Bureau of Reclamation and had a number of their engineers work with them for accelerated exposure and training in hydro projects. But as the years passed and the complicated and highly technical Snowy Mountain Scheme progressed successfully, it had developed its own workforce of highly skilled, qualified and experienced engineers and technicians running those later projects, working at the cutting edge of the new technologies. By the 1960s, the Snowy Authority was being called on to send their experts to advise on hydro and hydroelectric potential and projects across the Asia-Pacific region, just as the Americans had done for them at the start of the Snowy project. McHugh records that the Authority contributions included projects in Thailand, Burma, Nepal, Malaysia, Samoa and Papua New Guinea. In 1972, they converted that engineering expertise into the Snowy Mountains Engineering Corporation, or SMEC, which was set up specifically so that they could continue their specialist advisory role beyond the hydro project's finishing date. Sadly, with the fashion for privatising valuable and viable public assets in Australia, the SMEC that was developed from a snowy expertise was sold off to the Singapore government in 2016. The authority ran the hydro scheme generation after the building phase finished, and in 2002, the Snowy Mountains Hydroelectric Authority was corporatised, later merging with a company run by the New South Wales Government, the State Electricity Commission of Victoria, and the Commonwealth Body, to form Snowy Hydro Limited. In 2006, the New South Wales Government moved to privatise that organisation, and interestingly, in perhaps a reflection of the pride and affection that the public still feels about the Snowy Scheme, there was quite a backlash about that plan, including petitions and a lot of negative comment. 
McHugh reports that the federal government, despite being very keen supporters of privatising everything else, made the surprising decision that it would no longer sell its stake in the project. She records, quote, At a meeting about the sell-off, an embattled federal minister is said to have asked Howard, What percentage of the snowy do we own? Howard replied, 13%. So why, the member hissed, are we copping 100% of the shit? The political impact was suddenly clear, unquote. Once the federal government had backed down, the New South Wales and Victorian governments also felt their best move was to roll over. And, astonishingly, Snowy Hydro remains in public ownership. McHugh reminds us, Snowy Hydro itself, still the fourth largest electricity supplier to the national market and the leading supplier of peak renewable energy, was, by July 2018, wholly owned by the federal government and has two retail subsidiary companies called Red Energy and Lumo Energy. Until I did this research, I was unaware of that. What we can say about the original project, as I mentioned in the very first episode in this snowy series, was that the environmental and cultural considerations in the planning of the project were minimal in 1949. They very quickly recognised that the cattle that were then grazing in the high country across the area did considerable damage, particularly from their hard hooves, causing substantial muddying of the water courses and soil erosion, which would then cause silting of the dams, damaging the new infrastructure and the moving parts of the turbines. So the leases were purchased and the cattle removed. We now also know that same damage causes the loss of habitat for many of the native creatures and flora, and though the cattle are now mostly excluded from the more sensitive areas, feral horses and deer continue to cause environmental damage across the Snowy Ranges and the National Park. But the most visible and dramatic negative consequence was probably the devastating water starvation of the Snowy River in Victoria. Diverting the Snowy River at its source led to a reduction of water into Victoria down to 1% of the original flow. Isn't that amazing? That 1% of original flow might be deemed acceptable? This was never a popular idea to the Victorian side of the border around the river, but at the time, everyone affected there felt completely powerless. The planners had calculated how much water would be needed to meet the existing landholder water licence requirements, and that was covered by the 1% of flow. Little account was taken of any other impact on surrounds or any other environmental flow needs. The water supply dwindled early in the project, putting the Victorian Snowy River in a permanent state of drought, the flow then too weak to move silt and maintain riparian ecosystems around the river. Fish and other water-dependent animals declined, invasive species like the willow took over, and regular algal blooms occurred at various places along the river. In 1996, an expert report commissioned by the Snowy Genoa Catchment Management Committee confirmed the resulting devastation of the Snowy River and surrounds, and they recommended the flow down the Snowy be returned to at least a minimum rate of 28% of pre-hydro full average flow. Communities along the Snowy got behind the campaign and they began lobbying for a change with a Let the Snowy Flow campaign. Craig Ingram ran as an independent in East Gippsland in the 1999 Victorian state election with an increased snowy flow as his main platform and he actually won the seat against the long-standing National Party candidate there. He managed to negotiate agreement for a 21% flow increase mainly from buybacks and water use savings taken from the western flow over the following 10 years. In 2000, a massive but token environmental release of 38 billion litres was sent gushing down the snowy in August, mimicking, as McHugh put it, the snow melt of the past. But that meagre 28% flow that was deemed necessary has never been reached. These days you can monitor the webpage of the Victorian Environmental Water Holder, the independent statutory body responsible for holding and managing Victoria's environmental water entitlements, to see how much water has been released from the scheme dams into the snowy, and learn when large releases might be scheduled. Their current brochure indicates a large flushing flow should have been released in September this year, with smaller releases across the summer. Anyway, it's a bit of a meagre and sad result for the poor old snowy. While the snowy headwaters gathered from the Alps and redirected through the scheme account for about half of the increased flow into the Murray-Murrumbidgee Inland Irrigation Scheme, the rest comes from other mountain rivers, gathering runoff, approximately 2,410 billion litres a year, 
according to McHugh in her 2019 edition, but the irrigation water gave a false sense of security to the farmers inland, and the growth in usage and demand along the Murray and Murrumbidgee means desired allocations can no longer be met. Water availability continues to cause problems, long after the Snowy Hydro irrigation scheme was successfully implemented. The mighty Murrumbidgee and Murray now regularly dry in places, and flow at the mouth of the Murray in South Australia is perpetually compromised. Fights between the states over water allocations and use continue, even as the fish die in the receding pools. The hydropower has been a great boon, but in a dry continent, meeting water demands will continue to be a growing problem that the Snowy River diversions and irrigations couldn't viably solve. They already use cloud seeding to harvest as much moisture across the Alps as possible, but the supply is simply not infinite. Fortunately, after the dry season and multiple bushfires over the 2019-20 summer, at least early signs for 2021 look like more rain could be expected this season. So we've got to be pleased with any good news for 2020, don't we? <laughs> for electricity generation, fortunately technology has moved on. Snowy Hydro continues to provide substantial power to the grid. We now also have excellent and continually upgraded options with solar and wind generation that can be mediated through ever-improving battery storage if we choose. Once the country gets fully on board with these more distributed systems, old-fashioned mega-projects and power stations miles from the source of use might become a thing of the past. Interestingly though, over the last few years there has been a lot of talk about the Snowy Scheme, in particular about leveraging off the existing infrastructure and building Snowy Hydro 2.0. Mid-2020, the new 2.0 Snowy Hydro project was given the go-ahead to add a 2,000 megawatt pumped hydro storage facility to the existing infrastructure, resulting in a 50% increase in output potential. Given it's a contemporary project, I might leave you to Google that for yourself and see how that's going, what it will actually provide, and what impacts it may have. These projects are never without controversy. But at the time of the visionary Snowy project in the late 1940s, the interest in the resulting electricity and irrigation water was weighed up and deemed a bigger positive outcome than its costs. And there certainly was a lot of positive outcome from that original scheme. It truly was a noteworthy and impressive project to initiate, and surely preferable to building more coal-powered generators or nuclear power plants that might have been the other options at the time to meet the growing power needs. As McHugh spoke to the then old men and women of the scheme, many still felt there would never be a more impressive project. They had been part of a massive, unique and rewarding venture, contributing to the common good. In continuing her reflection, McHugh said, quote, But there are deeper reasons why the Snowy Scheme will always have a unique place in Australian history. First, it took place after a war in which Australia realised that England was not, after all, invincible. The fall of Singapore in 1942 created a widespread fear of invasion and a push to increase Australia's population. Many of the Europeans who migrated in response to this call left their own countries and they desperately wanted a stake in the new one." Unquote. After the destruction of war, everyone was keen to be involved in the construction of a positive future. McHugh suggested, quote, the characteristic mix of evangelical zeal and commitment with which Ben Chifley and his government set up the scheme was another factor in its success, unquote. She recorded one worker who'd come from overseas and spent decades on the snowy, saying, quote, I think that is my life's work, and that is a worthwhile thing that we did. Each one contributed a little bit to the big hole, unquote. There was the thrill of being part of history, of contributing to the development of post-war Australia in a direct and important way, one man recalling, quote, It was the biggest thing in Australia, and I thought, I'll be in that, unquote. McHugh recorded a homegrown Australian worker saying, quote, I remember when I left the shearing shed, and I said I was going to Cooma, to the Snowy Mountains scheme, and the fellows said, That's a great thing you're doing for Australia. And when I got there, that was the reaction. We're doing this for Australia. I know that sounds very jingoistic now, doesn't it? But that was the way it was. 
and I was mightily impressed with it as a young man. Unquote. One migrant worker's story is now memorialised on the Migration Wall commemoration at the Australian Maritime Museum in Sydney. Quote, I wanted to go overseas and see the world. The snowy sounded funny to us, because in Australia we expected sun, and they said snow. We were a bit dubious at first, because it was so unknown, and usually it's a bit dicey if no one else wants to go. But we were young, and we didn't worry, and we said, we'll give it a go, unquote. So said Otto Blank to Siobhan McHugh, a man who had joined the German army as a teenager because he thought the food might be better than in his orphanage. His story now stands to help represent all the international snowy workers who came here to give it a go and were part of the biggest nation-building scheme of the 20th century. For the workers, there was an air of civic pride and a sense that they were undertaking groundbreaking and essential work. Those involved felt privileged that they were contributing. It was perhaps an echo of the war effort itself, only more positive and lasting. And Hudson's leadership was instrumental in ensuring the project largely maintained this attitude throughout its long gestation. Nelson Lemon said, quote, After the snowy, she was a nation. Unquote. Well, the war may have contributed to the change in the way Australia saw itself, but he was right in that it was the impressively positive project that, with the early assistance and mentoring from others across the world, helped Australians grow into a self-confident and self-sufficient modern country. I think all involved were justified in being proud of their involvement. The scheme marked a long positive period when Australia embraced the idea of multiculturalism seeing the positives and the opportunities offered by inviting people to the country. It was a period of time we celebrated the contribution of migrants. The Snowy Scheme really was a spectacular aspiration and achievement, a defining project in a number of ways, contributing a great deal to the country and to our history. So I feel we've brought this story to a close now. But I wanted to just add this funny snippet that Siobhan McHugh recounted in her book about how she got the reluctant and publicity-shy Nelson Lemon to talk to her in the first place. Retiring from public office after his last term in Parliament, Lemon seemed to only give one interview to the National Library of Australia in 1988. But otherwise, he had not really shared his story about his role in this important project. She phoned him and explained she was writing a history of the scheme and asked would he be interviewed to contribute. She recounts, quote, He harumphed a bit and then, to my horror, said, No, thank you, and hung up. Unquote. She asked again in a letter, explaining her passion for the project and his importance to the history. She still got no response and some weeks later thought she should try at least one more time ringing his home again to check that the letter had been received. This time Lemon's wife answered the phone. When Siobhan introduced herself, Mrs Lemon asked, quote, You're the Irish lady? I said yes. Do you know a town called Mullingar? Unquote. And she did, responding perhaps with a slightly rose-tinted description, calling it a quote, small town set in a rich farming country. Unquote. This delighted Mrs Lemon, and she told Siobhan, Good. Well, my mother came from there, and I've told Nelson he has to talk to you. <laughs> so our grateful thanks to Ada Lemon and to Siobhan for being so determined and Irish. <laughs> Nelson's recollections were pure gold, and indeed all the stories Siobhan gathered have added to the overall picture of the Snowy Project. Lemon died only six months afterwards, and his oral history would have been lost to us all. McHugh donated her original recording collection to the State Library of New South Wales as a research archive, so that is a brilliant collection to have available, and no doubt future historians will continue to refer to these stories and be grateful for her efforts. Because this mid-20th century history is more recent, there is a wonderful legacy of stories, articles and, most impressively, photographs available to those with an interest in the Snowy Scheme. They can be found at the National Library of Australia, in the National Archives of Australia, or still with Snowy Hydro, and in other public library and archive collections. And I'll provide a link directly to Siobhan McHugh's website too. 
A search on the web will always bring up a wealth of resources. I've included only a few of the many in my reference list, but in just one last note, I'll draw your attention to the entry on the snowy scheme that forms part of the Defining Moments collection from the National Museum of Australia. Once again, they have included an entertaining and informative animation by historian and author David Hunt. I mentioned his work previously in relation to the Eureka series, so definitely check out the link to that in my reference list. Before we finish up this month and move on to a completely new topic, I'll give you another podcast recommendation to check out. This time I'm going to suggest The Flatpack History of Sweden. (laughs) It's a fun history podcast, chronologically charting Swedish history in a light-hearted and conversational way, and you'll be delighted to learn each episode some little saying in Swedish that may prove to be helpful for some future situation. (laughs) Hello, we're Chris and Elsa, the hosts of A Flatpack History of Sweden. We're looking at Swedish history step by step. From the Stone Age to the modern day, we cover everything from characters like King Weatherhat to famous events like ABBA winning Eurovision. We bring these hidden stories to the English-speaking world wherever you find your podcasts. For more information, find us on Facebook and Twitter as at Flatpack Sweden. Vikings are included. As always, I'll put a link to this recommended podcast on my webpage. Remember to head to the website at www.australianhistoriespodcast.com.au to see these links, the reference list and some related images for this episode. So now I better turn my mind to a couple of single shows. I'm sure I can find a couple of quick stories that might be of interest. Thanks for listening. Have a safe and happy few weeks. Check in next time for something completely different. (laughs) Cheers. Cheers.